If you have your Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 3. Just a, a passage that may give us a little background to this lesson tonight. But 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16, as Peter writes concerning some of the things that the Apostle Paul had written, he said, you know, in his epistles, he spoke about things which are, well, there, there's some things hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction. So Peter acknowledged that there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. And if you're not careful, you can twist those or arrest those scriptures and end up bringing about your own destruction. So it's crucial to understand the Bible. And yet he says there are some things that are hard to understand. And I always am quick to point out that as we read that passage and acknowledge that truth, please take note of what Peter did say and what he did not say. He said there are some passages, not all, some. We don't have to have a, an agnostic view of the Bible like, well, who can understand any of this? How do I know that I'm right about this? I mean, I may change my mind tomorrow. I'm, I, I could be wrong. There are some things we can know about the Bible. There are some things that are more difficult than others. But he said some things are hard to understand. Not all. There are some things that are easy to understand in Scripture. They just take uh, the will to obey them. And then he said that they're hard to understand. He didn't say impossible. Those things that are hard to understand aren't beyond our ability, but they may apply or they may require quite a bit of application and study and background and, and uh, reading and hard work and meditation. So I want to understand that, or I want us to understand that as we begin the study. I want to talk about the most difficult page in the Bible tonight, or maybe the most misunderstood page in the Bible, and, and use that verse as a background, because there are some things that are going to be understood or misunderstood in Scripture, but um, I, I don't know that it's what oftentimes some would suggest that it is. The most misunderstood page in the Bible, when we talk about that, let me just say this, that we come from backgrounds that differ. What may you, it may be old hat to you. I mean, this is stuff, oh, I've known that all my life, but not everybody does. And what I'm going to bring up tonight, when I say it's the most misunderstood page in the Bible, you might say, oh, pff, I, I've known that, I understood that. But a lot of folks haven't. And as you talk with your friends and neighbors that are religious and are trying to serve the Lord but yet haven't found the gospel, uh, the purity of the gospel, you need to help them to understand this truth. And so I thought it would be helpful to go over uh, this. So let's ask the question, what is the most misunderstood page in the Bible? Some might suggest, well, maybe the most misunderstood page in the Bible would be Revelation chapter 20. You have your Bible, you might want to just flip over there real quickly because there's some things in Revelation 20 that people would find difficult to understand. There's that statement that says that there's this bottomless pit and that Satan is bound in this bottomless pit and he's bound in chains and he's going to be there for a thousand years. And, and there's going to be saints who are reigning for a thousand years. 
And that passage talks about uh, a first resurrection and then a second resurrection. And, and so, you know, what are we to make of all this? When is this going to happen and what's it all about? And, and you have all this symbolism. Uh, Revelation 20, boy, that's a hard, often misunderstood chapter in the Bible. But that's not the one that I want to talk about. Judges chapter 11, for some people, just is confounding to them. They can't quite get their arms around it. Wait, there's this guy by the name of Jephthah, and he's a judge in Israel, and he promises, he makes a vow to God to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house if God would give him victory, and he did give him victory. And on his way home, guess what came out of his house first? His daughter. And it sounds like Jephthah offered his daughter as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering to God. Wait, how do I get my arms around that? How can anyone do that? God doesn't want human sacrifice. What what am I to make of Jephthah chapter 11? That's a difficult passage. Somebody else might say, well, you know, I find Romans chapter 4 pretty difficult. Because I don't know how to justify or harmonize Romans 4 and James chapter 2. Because in Romans 4, it says that Abraham was justified by his faith apart from works. But I get over to the book of James chapter 2, and it says Abraham was justified by his works and not by faith only. So what, what's the deal? Martin Luther decided to settle the thing by saying James is a strawy epistle. Um, it's justification by faith. James kind of missed it. And, and so what, what, what are we to make of Romans chapter 4? We, we don't believe the Bible disagrees with itself. We're not willing to throw James out. But there has to be some way to harmonize what Paul said about justification with Abraham by faith apart from works with what the Bible says elsewhere. That for a lot of folks, that's a difficult passage to understand. Another difficult page in the Bible might be uh, Daniel chapter 9, as well as some other passages in Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 9, uh, there's, Daniel has a, a vision, and uh, well, chapter 8 in connection to that vision, but there's this promise that um, 70 weeks would bring an end to sin and would usher in the Holy One. And uh, there's this this thing about Daniel talking to Gabriel, and Gabriel would have been there earlier to to tend to him and to answer his prayer, um, but uh, he was held up in a conflict with another angel. But then somebody else took over for him and released him so that he could come on. Down. What is all of that? And how am I going to figure out this timeline of this seventy weeks? And what what does all that mean? It's a difficult passage, but I still don't think that's the most misunderstood passage. You can come to your uh, Bible and you can look at Matthew chapter 24, and, and boy, that's a passage that's often misunderstood. There are the signs, you know, earthquakes, pestilence, um, you know, famine, these things, signs of the times. Those are things that are going to be signs for the return of Jesus. And, and people are constantly looking today at signs, trying to find out when Jesus is going to come back. They don't understand that those signs were given with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem, not with respect to the return of Jesus. 
so many people misunderstand that page in the Bible. Those would be all good selections. But the page that I want to talk to you about just for a little bit and just do a little bit of Bible study with you tonight and maybe remind you that not everybody is where you are currently. And this is the page that I think is often the most misunderstood page in the Bible. It's that page that is inserted between Malachi chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 1, which says the New Testament of Jesus Christ. Wait, what, what, what's so hard to understand about that? I mean, that's the break, right? You got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. But I'm telling you, that truth that you understand, and you maybe if you've grown up in the church, you understand it and have understood it all your life. But many people do not understand the significance of the covenants, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Many people appeal to the Old Testament for justification for what they do and practice in religion as much as they do the New Testament. They'll go to the Old Testament and say, see, we can do this and we can do that because they did, and we can do this and do that because they did it here. And, and there are those who just appeal equally and evenly to the old law as well as the new law for what they do in religion, and it ignores, it's a misunderstanding that there is a new covenant. And so let me um, talk about this page or at least what this page represents in our Bible and why that is often so misunderstood. In the year 1816, Alexander Campbell was uh, preaching. He was a young man, 28 years of age. And um, he had spoken enough to have riled some of the preachers, his fellow preachers in the area of Bethany, Wellsburg, West Virginia, and um, there, there was a Redstone Association meeting. It was a collection of, of churches. And they were going to have this um, meeting together. And why this meeting, this Redstone Association is in Wellsburg, Bethany's less than 10 miles away. And, and Campbell was a well-known individual. You would be snubbing him not to ask him to participate in this event and that's exactly what they chose to do. The preacher, the local preacher there, did not invite Campbell to speak and overlooked him. And um, 30 years after the event occurred, Campbell said of this event, this was probably God's providence. Because the man who was selected to speak in place of Campbell got sick. At the last minute, he got sick and was unable to preach. And so... At that point, it was hard not to say, will you fill his slots? And so Campbell said, yeah, I'll, I'll fill the slot. Just give me, let the guy that was supposed to speak a little later, let him speak now, and then I'll fill his spot. And so he, he had a little bit of time to prepare a lesson, basically from his overflow you know, this is an impromptu sermon, but probably the most famous sermon that Alexander Campbell ever preached. And it's simply called or, or become known as the Sermon on the Law. And what Campbell did in this sermon is that he tried to um, establish that there 
is a, a break, a, a change in the covenants. There was the Old Testament, and now there's a New Testament. And we're not under the Old Testament anymore. We're under the New Testament of Jesus Christ. We're not under the law. We're under Christ. And we have liberty here, whereas that brought sin and death. And the implications were far-reaching. I mean, if we're not under the law, think of what that means. That, that means uh, it affects, you know, the celebration of holy days. It affects the celebration of the Sabbath. It affects um, how we worship, the use of instruments and music, burning of incense, animal sacrifice. You know, the whole line. He said all of that has been done away. And we're to follow the New Testament today. Listen. That was news. They didn't ever hear that before. That's not what they grew up believing. They believed the law could be divided into some moral and judicial and, and um, ceremonial laws. And, and that it's just the ceremonial and the judicial laws that were done away with. And we're still under the, the Ten Commandments. And, and when Campbell preached this sermon that we're no longer under any of the law. They said, you're a heretic. And um, it was really the beginning of the end for Campbell. And Campbell said, again, 30 years later, he said, probably that sermon and the opposition that I received from it is more responsible for the Reformation movement that he was engaged in, we call it the Restoration Movement, than than anything that he was able to put his finger on. Um, but is it that hard for us today? We're the beneficiaries of some who had already done some study ahead of us. And so when I say there's two covenants, there's the Old and New Testament, we get that. And we understand that the old law was for the Jews and the New Testament is the gospel of Christ for all men. But that isn't understood across the board there's still a lot of people that don't understand that distinction that Campbell preached, well, in 1816, and that Jesus and his inspired apostles preached 2,000 years ago. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that uh, the we don't believe in the Old Testament. Sometimes people will say that. Oh, the church of Christ. Yeah, I've heard about you guys. You're the ones that don't believe in the Old Testament. No, yes, we do. We believe in all the Old Testament. We believe all Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Man, we believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament being the inspired, the God-breathed Word of God. So that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is a change in law. You see, there was a time when God governed his people by what he wrote in the Old Testament, but that was going to be replaced with the new. Turn in your Bible, and let's just look at that and see if the Bible doesn't teach that. Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 7. And let's begin there just real quickly. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul uses marriage as an illustration 
Because they understood this, and he said, well, if you get this truth about marriage, then you're going to understand this truth about the law. And here's the truth. He said, um, verse 2, for the woman, well, verse 1, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. In other words, if you're married, you're bound to each other. And the only thing that frees you, releases you from that bond is death. And so he says in verse 3, however, if while her husband lives, she marries another man. She'll be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she's set free from the law so that she's no adulteress, even though she's married another. In other words, if I'm married to my wife and I decide to marry another wife, that's adultery. Can't do that. You can't have two at the same time. And he goes on and says in verse five or verse four, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Uh, through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. The only way that a man who's married to his wife or a woman who's married to her husband can get married to somebody else is that a death has to take place. Then they're free to marry again. And Paul uses that as an illustration to teach a lesson about the law. We can't be married to two laws at the same time. That's spiritual adultery. We have to die to one so that we can be married to the other. And what law is he talking about in context? If you go down to verse 7, what shall we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said thou shalt not covet he's talking about the old law the ten commandments so we're not saying we don't believe the old law we're just saying we're dead to it the bible tells us in ephesians 2 and verse 15 colossians 2 and verse 14 two passages that are almost identical both of them say that when jesus died on the cross he nailed that old law to the cross. We're free from it. And we now serve under uh, the, the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings of Moses. Do you remember there was an occasion when Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were on the Mount of Transfiguration? And the apostles, Peter, James, and John saw this, and man, they were just like in awe. Can you believe this? We're here with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. You listen to him. Well, now Moses was the lawgiver. Yes. And Elijah was a great prophet. Yes. They both spoke for God. But the time has come when I want you to listen to my son. He takes precedence. What we're saying is that the new covenant is better than the old. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and uh, look at a couple passages there in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, 
for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Those who are called may receive the promise of eternal life. And you go back to Hebrews chapter 8 and you get into that better covenant, verse 8, um, because finding fault, he said, behold, these days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the old one, but a new one written on the heart, not written on stone. That's a quote from Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. So you know the Old Testament itself even said, there's, a, there's an end to this. And when this end comes, we're going to be given a new law, a better law. And that's what we have in Christ. And um, turn just over to chapter 10, and we'll see that the law was really a shadow of Jesus. You know, a shadow is kind of an interesting thing. It, you can get an idea about a person by looking at a shadow, but you can't really get a good look. Oh, you can get a general form, and sometimes that form is distorted by the angle of the light, but you can, you can probably tell certain features about a person by looking at a shadow. It, it gives you a picture, but it's vague. And the writer of Hebrews says that the law was a shadow of good things to come. There are some things that we can learn about Jesus by looking at the shadow, the old law. There are things that we can learn about God and his character and what pleases him and what displeases him. There are things that we can learn about sacrifice and sin and redemption. There are a lot of things about the old law that we can learn in a vague way. But until Jesus comes, he's the substance He's the one who casts the shadow. Like, you know, look at, the, look at the imagery. You have animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Why in the world did God have all these animals slain in the Old Testament? Why is there so much bloodshed? Are you kidding me? Think of how many animals were shed by Israel every year. Think of the gore and the violence and the blood. Is God just bloodthirsty? Why would you kill an innocent lamb and shed the blood of that lamb so that I can go about my my business? It was a picture. It, It didn't work in an absolute sense. The shedding of blood, the, the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't remove sin. But it was a picture of what was to come. It was a shadow I, those people living back then understood the concept of substitutionary atonement. Oh, this has to die for me. And then Jesus comes on the scene. The perfect, sinless Son of God. And He dies and sheds His blood on the cross so that we can stand justified before God. And we understand that. Because we're familiar with it. We have 2,000 years of history where that was taking place in a picture, in a shadow sense, with animals and the shedding of their blood. And now Jesus comes and we see it more clearly, more fully. That was all to set up this. And that's what the old law was given for. Turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. And again, there's the statement that is made that the law was a tutor. 
um, a schoolmaster. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 23. Listen to what it says. But before the faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, or the faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Here's what he said. You know that old law? Here's what it did. It was a guardian. It, it protected us. It brought us to Jesus and dropped us off and said, here, this is the one that you need to rely upon. But once we're brought to Jesus, there's no longer any need for the old law, the tutor. It's done away. And that's precisely what Paul said. The law was to bring us to Christ, and Christ came and the law went away. And so, the most misunderstood page in the Bible, it may very well be that page between Malachi and Matthew that says the New Testament of Jesus Christ. Because there are a lot of people that don't understand. Oh, I thought I could go back and find out how to live and and the rules for living back in the Old Testament. No, no. Many of those rules in the Old Testament are contradictory today to what Jesus tells us to do. And how many of us are going to follow those rules anyway? I mean, listen, if you find a man on the Sabbath day picking up sticks, the children of God were commanded to stone him. You going to do that? Well, the reason you shouldn't, and I would advise you not to, is because that's the old law. That's not given to you. That was given to the Jews. We're under the law of Christ the New Testament, and Jesus not only doesn't command the observance of the Sabbath, but he doesn't command the, the punishment that goes along with those who wouldn't observe it. So keep in mind that distinction. As you study with your friends and neighbors, understand that they may not understand that there are two covenants. They may consider that you don't believe in the Old Testament. Straighten them out on that. Let them know that you believe in the Old Testament, that, but you don't believe it's the law that governs your life today. I'll tell you what, we need to be thankful to God for the Old Testament. I love to read the Old Testament, and it should be that way. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says the, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. It's for us. God wrote that Old Testament for us so that we can read it and learn about Him and His will and His character so that we can better serve Jesus today. That old law brought people to Jesus who is our Savior And I want to encourage you to come to Jesus as well, because he is that. He is our Savior. And if you haven't yet obeyed him and and accepted him through obedience as your Savior, you, you need to do that tonight. Jesus again said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I believe that. And if you do too, then obey it if you haven't. 
And if you're a child of God already but unfaithful and, and you say, you know what, I, I need to get my life right. I've gone too long. It's too risky. I'm ashamed. I want to come back. We'll pray with you if you'll come as we stand together and sing.